there's something outside. What is that? This is Julie Wrench for another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, talking old-timers with the great Thomas Steenberg. And I'm going to go ahead and bring Thomas on in. How you doing? I'm not getting any younger, Judy. I'm still getting older. <laughs> well, I think age is just a number, right? That's what they say. That's what they keep telling me, and that's what I keep telling myself. But I seem to be saying it more and more often. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You guys having a good winter up there? Or how's oh, that going been so far? Dogs for a week. <laughs> oh boy. But What's compared your, to the rest, uh, of that, temperature then? I'll, I'll I'll put up with it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it was 50-something here today, so I guess I can't complain too much. Uh, it is <laughs> middle of winter. But now, well, guys, yeah. we have a really good show for you guys. Um, we have Mr. Lyle Blackburn with us tonight. Uh, Lyle has been doing this for a very long time. He uh, he's He's done writing, music, film, um, authored several books, including The Beast of Boggy Creek and Lizard Man. Um, just one heck of a busy guy, and we appreciate him carving out a little bit of time to come on to the show with us tonight. And I want to welcome you on, Lyle. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, we certainly appreciate you being here. Um, Lyle, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with you. I don't know how you could be involved in this and not be somewhat familiar with you at least. Um, for for people who don't know, you've done so much, and you're also in, in a, a band, uh, the Ghoul Town Band, but what, what got you started an interest in all of the subject matter, the cryptid world and so forth? Well, it was something I was always interested in from a young age. Uh, I remember getting a book uh, called Strange But True back when I was in elementary school, and that's the, probably the first time I read about Bigfoot and Yeti and Loch Ness Monster, you know, and had sections like that. You know, and I was just enthralled because I loved, you know, I loved monster movies and things, but this to me was like, wow, you know, you could really see some you know, quote unquote monster or, or whatever legendary beast in real life. So I love that. And then later on saw the movie, the legend of Boggy Creek, um, which, uh, you know, that documents a 
supposed Sasquatch-like creature in southern Arkansas, which was only about three hours from where I grew up in Texas. So that kind of hit home, and that just kind of uh, stuck with me my whole life. And I, you know, read books and did things like that, and then later on uh, ended up writing a book on The Legend of Boggy Creek, and that's sort of what propelled me into the more serious research and and you know, ongoing books and then documentaries and things like that. So the seed was planted long ago, as I'm sure a lot of us uh, can identify. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm about the same age as you are, and I remember seeing the movie The Beast of Boggy, or The Legend of Boggy Creek in the theater. And my mom took me there when I was like seven. So it scared the, the Jesus out of me, but it also planted that seed in me and I was like, wow, you know, these things are real. I got to know. So, yeah, I mean, folks our age, a lot of them were inspired by this, this particular story, that particular subject matter. Um, so you, I, I know that you were involved in um, going down there and, and talking to um was it, his last name's Crabtree. I can't think of his first name to save my life right now. Smokey. Right. Yeah. When I when I started doing this, you know, I mean, I kind of, uh, you know, started by going up to Falk, and you know, my intent there was to discern what was true about the story, and then what you know was dramatized in the movie. So it's kind of a personal journey to. Um, you know, unravel this famous Bigfoot case. You know, I love Bigfoot uh, encounters and cases, and this certainly was something within my grasp, and I could go up there. And I just started, you know, visiting with people in town, poking around to see what there was. And at the time, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of interest. There wasn't it, Bigfoot wasn't as popular as it is now, and the legend was sort of just treading water there and and so uh you know eventually i i was able to interview people who had either had encounters or people that knew a lot about it or were there when the movie was made and you know built this fascinating story not only of how you know this bigfoot bigfoot sightings inspired this movie that was a phenomenon in the 70s but also that there had been encounters that had been going on ever since but not very well documented or publicized so then i realized wow this is this whole thing's still going on and that really propelled my research to you know start in a historical place and then come all the way up to now and then with my latest book the boggy creek case book i've added on you know so many more encounters than I even knew about back when I wrote The Beast of Boggy Creek. So, um, you know, and I, I knew Smokey Crabtree. He's passed away now, but he was a, a big part of the Legend of Boggy Creek movie. His various family, family members had had sightings, and um, Smokey was just a really amazing guy and a great outdoorsman. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, hanging out and, and – uh, he kind of introduced me to, uh, you know, interesting things about that 
terrain in that area. So he, he's, he's missed, but his family members and other folks are all there, and they've since become friends. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I remember um, when you first went down there reading some of the stuff that you had posted about that later on, and I, too, was like, wow, there's still those sightings going on in that particular area because, you know, a lot of people think, well, maybe it was just a, a one-time deal in the 70s, you know, uh, spark people's interest or uh, to make this movie or whatever, but no, it's still going on to this day, is it not? Yes. In, in fact, I just uh, got an encounter which occurred on – look at my paper here. I've got a note, January the 4th. Oh wow! So, yeah, we're we're starting off the the year here with a bang, and it's been a little quiet there. But uh, I got uh, I haven't interviewed the witness yet. This was coming from a a good friend of mine that lives there that kind of gave me the details that I can follow up on. But uh, this guy saw it was around 6 p.m., so it wasn't uh, the sun was you know still up and starting to get dusk I guess and then uh, he saw what he described as a very orangutan looking ape like creature run across the road south of the town south of Falk and uh, you know his description was very he said he, it it kind of ran on all fours and it had a reddish color hair which I've heard that a few times. I mean, on, on occasion you get these encounters where people say it looks more ape-like or it was moving with its arms down or on all fours, so it was interesting, but the uh, sounded like a very credible report, and whatever he saw, you know, he, he definitely saw something and kind of fits in with the with some of the strange encounters that's been going on there in Falk. So these are the kind of things I get pretty much mm. on a regular basis. Well, I know that Thomas um, knows a lot about the events that took place down there, and I know that's one of his his favorite um, encounter stories too. Thomas, did you have some stuff you wanted to to throw in there? Absolutely. Uh, great to talk to you, Lyle. Thomas Steenberg here. Uh, good fan of uh, the work you've done over the years. I've read The Beast of Boggy Creek. I'm just finishing Sinister Swamps, which is a book you just uh, wrote not too long ago, and it took me over four months to get it because of COVID. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I ordered it back, kind of crazy. back in June. You just got it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's kind of weird because I've, I've been shipping out oh, countless numbers of those, and I assume Amazon has been filling their orders, but no. Uh, I, there's a know. little bookstore here in town I usually go through to find difficult, uh, uh, difficult to get, and they're pretty good at it. But sometimes it takes time now, and getting books across uh, the border, everything. The COVID has slowed everything right down to a crawl. Oh yeah. 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 Definitely. It's it's been a mess for, <laughs> as far as <laughs> that all that, that all goes. So I I know what you mean. Yeah. And I remember back when I was a boy, I, I, I went to see The Legend of Boggy Creek, too, when it went up, but I was already, already fascinated with the Sasquatch legend and mystery, and I, like most people, 
thought of the Sasquatch as a West Coast phenomena. When the book, or when the movie, The Legend of Bright Creek went out, I was amazed that such things had been seen in the eastern part of the continent, too, because, of course, I had not heard too much about that. And uh, when, uh, when I, uh, me and my cousin would sneak into the Bancroft Theater to see the movie again and again and again before we got caught, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just fascinated. But I always wanted to ask you, know, I got the movie always gave the people, the public, the impression that most of the footprints found, alleged footprints found by the, what they were referred to as the Falk Monster, I often wonder why it wasn't called the Jonesville Monster, because it seemed most of the encounters seemed to be around that area, was actually five-toed, not three. Is that true? Well, the the footprints that were found right around in 1971 that the film concentrates on, as far as the film, really they were in the first sort of public encounter which happened at the Ford house in which over the course of several days this thing came around on the porch and you know this is the last part of the movie but this was really the first kind of thing that happened um, that went in the papers the sheriff said that he he saw what looked like some kind of three-toed tracks up near the house they didn't take a photo of those or anything and then a uh, several weeks later, in a, in a bean field, it was freshly plowed. They found a big long line of tracks that were three-toed. I mean, essentially, kind of a narrow-looking Bigfoot track, but it only had three toes. And that really just sort of cemented the idea that the Falk Monster tracks all had three toes. But uh, some of the other ones, there was one that occurred in. A few years later, uh, that corresponded to a sighting, those tracks looked to be four-toe. And then uh-huh. over the years, there have been other tracks that have come up, and those are more like five-toe, just sort of you're more close to a, what we would think of as a Bigfoot track. So the unfortunate thing here is that all sorts of numbers of toe uh you know, orientations have been found, which just sort of complicates the mystery more than it already is. Absolutely. Now, the the Willie Smith Beanfield tracks, the ones you're referring to, did that occur while the movie was being filmed, or was it before? It was before. That was oh. June 13th, 1971. He didn't start filming the movie till fall of that year, so... Uh, it, it looks rather real be, be in the scenes because literally uh, some of the reporters like Dave Hall, who was a radio reporter here in Texarkana, uh, he's shown in that scene of the movie, he was literally there when they happened. So it, it looked very like it looked almost like they were filming it, you know, that it just happened. But they were they were reenacting it. But it had not been too many months before when it actually happened. When they reenacted, did they actually film it in the in the spot, or was it somewhere else? They literally filmed it in the spot. I wow. thought so. Okay, okay. And the, the Ford incident, I understand, by, based on what you wrote in your book, uh, the Beast of Boggy Creek, that they actually did not film that at the actual Ford house. They filmed it in another one nearby. Right. Uh, the 
you know, when that when the Ford encounters happened in uh, early in like May of 1971, that got in the Texarkana Gazette, made a big buzz in the newspapers, and it was like one of these things where people were going down there trying to look at the house and stuff. So when Pierce came to make the movie, he, the cool thing was he was really trying to be as authentic and as he could. So he wanted to film in that house, but the people who owned it, they were renting it to the Fords and the people who owned it were asking too much money and Pierce just didn't have hardly any budget. And so what yeah. it was just go up to Texarkana, uh, which was not even in Falk and used a house up there that was near a Creek. So he had to just do what he had to do. So that wasn't, that's not the actual house. And, and the Ford house has since been torn down. So if you go to Falk today, you you couldn't see it. Hmm. Okay, okay. Now I read in other books through the time uh, on counts of what was going on in the Ford incident. It was a, a young boy who was basically curiosity seekers would come and look at the house, much to the annoyance of the of the owners. And he he'd make a little pocket money by showing people around and stuff like that. And he told a lot of people that. Some of the neighbors, when the Fords actually uh, were going out and shooting at whatever this was in the dark, some of the neighbors found that one of their horses that they had let loose to run around free in, in the property next door was actually shot dead. Do you know of that? Yes, that is true. There was okay. a horse, that, an old horse that kind of roamed around there, and several people, including Smokey, kind of proposed that maybe what the Fords were seeing was the horse, but I've thoroughly poured over this and I've talked to uh, various people who even the, the former Miller County Sheriff, and I'm quite positive whatever they saw, it wasn't a horse, but I, oh. but it, <laughs> I think the horse might've got shot uh, possibly because they were they were shooting, they were up there yeah. shooting at this thing, and they they very clearly described it as running upright on two legs. It looked, you know, ape-like yet moved like a person, and it was probably seven feet tall. Um, you know, there's a good uh, description in some of the newspapers straight from the Ford. So I'm pretty oh, absolutely. confident. Bobby Ford said he was grabbed by the thing, and I don't think a horse would grab somebody. But uh, uh, was the was the constable or sheriff? I'm not sure what exactly his police rank was. Was it a man by the name of Walraven? Yes, that was him, and that was you know Walraven's a real guy. He he did investigate. Is he still alive? Uh, no. Okay. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him? No, he 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 passed away before I I started that. So hey, know, okay, I, I was just curious if anyone ever got his opinion on what was going on and what he what his conclusions were. Right. No, unfortunately, nobody ever went back and interviewed him. You know, in depth, mm -hmm. aside from what was already in the Texarkana Gazette and so a few other papers. Um, the the best source I had for that. Uh, was the former Miller County in Falks and Miller County was a former Miller, Miller County sheriff, 
H.L. Phillips, and he was okay. he was on duty during the heyday of all that stuff. And of course, he you know was well informed of you know each thing going on, and so I could sort of get his view of it from a law enforcement perspective. Okay, now would uh, would uh, would it be the same department responding to reports? that were actually closer to Jonesville than Falk? The, all of the incidents that occurred in Jonesville were not public knowledge, so no, no police responded to any of that. And all that occurred um, from the 1950s. I mean, it, it goes back even further, but primarily from the 50s on up to the mid sixties, there were a lot of sightings in Jonesville and that's when it was originally called the Jonesville monster because that's, it was just the locals calling it that. And that's mm-hmm. when Smoky, Smoky Crabtree's son had his sighting and so forth. But none of those ever made it into the newspaper uh, or anything. That was just something that was, you know, knowledge among the, the residents in and around Jonesville, which is a, just a community down by the Sulphur River, very close to Falk. And then uh, it wasn't until May of 1971 until it actually became sort of public knowledge when the Ford incident made it into the paper. So all that other stuff was sort of pieced together after the fact. It was almost like, well, hey, you know, this isn't the first time people have seen a big hairy monster. We've been seeing it down here for a decade or 20 years, and then all of a sudden people go, wow, okay, you know, there's something mm-hmm. going on here. Yeah, it was basically the movie that made it world uh, made it world famous. Right, and then, you know, of course, you know, we know today that there is plenty of other cases around the South and other states that are similar, but Boggy Creek, you know, just stands out and has become hugely famous just because it had a, you know, a phenomenon of a movie behind it whereas you know other things that would be similar sort of have faded away because you know they didn't there was nothing made out of it so you know Falk is not an isolated incident but it is certainly one that has what in my opinion a lot more credibility a lot more sightings and a lot more consistent history than than some of the other places in the south so, so in your opinion, do you think the instance around Falk, Arkansas, may be connected to, uh, let's say, Momo in Louisiana and and sightings in Texas as well? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in most certainly in the case of, of the Texas sightings, because if you if you just jog about forty five minutes south through the woods. Mm-hmm. You you're in East Texas, and it's all fairly contiguous. Um, the Sulphur River, along which there's been numerous Boggy Creek related sightings, the Sulphur River starts in Texas and runs through Arkansas and then back. Uh, right, Falcon Jonesville south. is right down there in the southwest corner of the state, right? Right. So all of that, including Louisiana, uh, yeah, you. Any creature seen there, you know, a Bigfoot-like creature, it could just as well be the Falk monster, uh, 
because, I mean, mm-hmm. surely they would roam a wider area. And there's certainly, even today, a lot of heavily forested areas in that in that zone, along with the uh, water web from the Sulphur River to the Red River to the Mississippi. So, yeah, it's all tied together, much like John Green basically uh, said, you know, in Sasquatch the Apes Among Us back in the late 70s. He was on to that already, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just it's, it's, I'm, the movie, unfortunately, had a few uh, drawbacks. One, it gives you the impression it was a single animal all by itself. And, uh, and, and uh, of course, we know there's probably, a, assuming that these creatures do exist, that there's probably a population of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you, words right out of my mouth there. That's that's mm-hmm. exactly it. And, and the movie certainly it needed some pathos for that the character of the creature. So Pierce was very, uh, you know, in the writer Earl Smith is great to give it sort of that lonely. It's alone. It's solitary feel. But certainly in in real life, you know, in terms of if it's a biological creature and all that, there's got to be a population living down there. It can't just be one, you know. Do you have any idea why uh, Pierce, when he uh, made his movie, stuck with actual names in certain incidents and then gave uh, uh, fake names and changed uh, uh, identity of other witnesses? Like, it's obviously the case where the kid goes running out because he thinks dogs are chasing something, and he took a shot at it and allegedly wounded it. That's the Crabtree boy, yet the movie gives you the impression it's someone completely different, unrelated. Right. He, 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 when possible, he wanted to use the actual witnesses because originally the working title was, track, was called Tracking the Fout Monster, and it was more of a documentary the way it started. Mm-hmm. And he was you know, very much trying to, you know, use the real people and the real names. Um, but some of them wouldn't agree to it. And Lynn Crabtree, the kid who, Smokey's son that had the sighting in around 65, he just didn't want to talk about it, didn't want any part of it. So Pierce, you know, couldn't use his name. But you can, you know, it, he it's the story. It's just a little bit different, and they used a, another bout kid to reenact it. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, and he... He, you know, he changed a few names, but most of them were were the actual names and real people. And even sometimes he he the person was older, and when they did the reenactment, he had to use somebody else. Like in the uh, scene where Mary Beth Cersei has a sighting, she's hmm. the scene. She's out at the well, and it's starting to get dark, and she goes in and she's reading, and you know, I. Come, the baby's getting cold. Come put a blanket over the window, and all that stuff. And well, that was Mary. That was the actual Mary Beth playing the part of her older sister. So mm. little nuances of trivia at the actual house. <laughs> and that was literally the house where the sighting took place. That was the window she looked out when she saw this thing in '64. And uh, that house still stands, and, you know, I've been to that. I've been to that window. I've, you know, looked around that house, which is pretty neat just because it's 
kind of an icon to at least to us in terms of movie magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also was wondering about the incident with the three girls in the trailer that were panicking with the rifle. Yes, that was based on a, uh, a real incident, and I did speak to one of the girls who was in the trailer, the one that was the actual person that lived in Falk, and they lived uh, County Road 9, right by where Boggy Creek crosses over. And she, she told me that, you know, they didn't see anything, but she said that gave a good sense of what was going on at the time, because that there was that sort of frenzy and fear and you know with all these reports coming out in the newspapers there in uh spring and summer of 1971 everybody was on edge and so certainly you put three high school age girls at home alone any any bump in the forest is going to be the fount monster and she said it was just a true you know a truly kind of scary time and so i guess she told she or somebody had told the story to Charles Pierce, and he thought, oh, that's that'll make a great scene, you know, uh, of them, you know, fearing that the thing's coming around. Hmm. Okay. Now, I was informed by Smokey. Uh, I never met Smokey. Uh, he was a friend of uh, the late Bill Miller, who was a colleague and friend of mine, and we only exchanged letters. And he sent me a couple of copies of his book, Smoking the Folk Monster Autograph. He told me that the uh, the hermit character, Herb Jones, was a real guy who did uh, live the way he did. And he met a tragic end because apparently he had fallen through the floor of that shack that he was in, was stuck there, and no one found him for weeks. Is that, is that unfortunately true? Unfortunately, yes, that is true. Hmm. Uh, okay. Herb Jones... Herb Jones, which uh, his family is why it's called Jonesville. Uh, he he was a hermit and lived about for about 20 years down in Mercer Bayou, um, which is a, a very swampy kind of the swamp scenes you see in Legend of Boggy Creek. That's that's the habitat, um, and uh, he 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 actually lived there. In fact, I've you know I, I know where that where his shack used to be and I went down there uh and excavated a bunch of his things out of there bottles and parts of his shack and I you know I took a canoe down there and pulled some relics out of there that are now in various Bigfoot museums and stuff but uh it was kind of neat just to go to that spot and stand there and and think about the movie and uh but yeah he did he did fall through the shack and got stuck and he just succumbed to uh, the elements because it was during a rather cold time and he, he actually froze to death. Mm. And my, uh, the uh, Ch- Sheriff Phillips, the guy that I talked about that I knew, uh, he was the one that actually went down there and found him and uh, because nobody had heard from him and, for a while, and uh, he went down there and found him dead. So I got that story straight from the sheriff. How long oh, after the movie was complete and he did those scenes, did that happen? Uh, I think it, I was years after that. It wasn't okay. It wasn't okay. immediately after the movie, and 
And unfortunately, because of the movie, like he he had a bottle tree with a bunch of bottles and stuff, and then <clears throat> some a bunch of yahoos went down there and shot up all those bottles and kind of messed with him after that. So he kind of blew the privacy of his place because you know people kind of knew he was living down there. Unfortunately, and it's a shame. Yeah, and, it is. and that was. Indicative of some of what Smokey went through as well. I mean, there was all kinds of. You can imagine, you know, when first when the monster was making headlines in the paper, you had a lot of people wanting to hunt it and come to town. Well, when the movie got big, you had hundreds of people down there with twelve packs and shotguns running amok mm-hmm. on people's properties, including Smokey's. And you know, they the folks in Falk, rightly so, did not appreciate all that. Oh, yes, I know. I remember Smokey uh, told me he had a sign on his property saying, Monster Hunters, not welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Smokey was, uh, you know, he was, he he, he liked to, it it bothered him a lot, I guess is the best way to say it. And he he got riled up by all that stuff. You know, some people kind of shrugged it off, but certainly Smokey got the, the brunt end of a lot of it. And the poor guy had to put up signs, and his privacy mm. was invaded. So I, I know he he had a his view of the legend of Boggy Creek is not as romantic as mine is. You uh-huh. know, I, I'm looking at it or all of you, both, all three of us, looking at it from the outside. But the people that lived there had to deal with the monster hunters and all the hoopla. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And haven't you said that? Uh, uh, I just want to tell you, I watched your documentary, The Boggy Creek Monster, The Truth Behind the Legend, mm-hmm. and I thought it was fantastic. I thought you did an excellent job, and I'm usually one of the biggest critics of most of the documentary that comes out nowadays, but I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the one you did there. Uh, I thought it was very well done, and I'd like to hear if you have any criticisms on what was shown in the movie that wasn't true. Um. Well, most mostly, I suppose hmm, the movie sensationalizes it a bit. While pretty much everything in there is a true encounter, you know, with the Fords and and all that kind of stuff, I, it kind of plays it up um, dramatically. But it, it's really not too far off the truth. The only Mm-hmm. There's a couple of a couple of those things I couldn't find a real source for. There's a guy at some Apache ranch or something. Nobody knows what that is, and we can never figure out what who is, you know, that that scene. I can't find a source for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost mm-hmm. all the others, you know, like the guy that found the dead hogs. You know, what kind of thing would carry off two hundred pound hogs? You know, I talked to that guy. <laughs> I called him on the phone, and he's like, "What? You want to talk to me about this?" You know, I'm saying, "Yeah, yeah." And uh, how about a fellow who had his dog killed? Uh, Howard Walraven. Yeah, yeah, I've talked to him. Yeah, he's the one who said it looked like the dog had its hide ripped right off its back. But I'm going to get him one of these days, and that's going to be all she wrote. <laughs> that's right. Yep, he's a real guy, and he, he's still alive. Uh, All right. 
And uh, so, you know, in, in some of the voices, I'd say something that isn't true to life is some of the voices are overdubbed. Some of those aren't the actual people. So they would, they would, once they had filmed the reenactment, they would some, a lot of times not film with sound and then sometimes overdub a different person's voice. So I know that bothered some of the folks in Fout, but mm. it's just, Pierce kind of had to do that because, you know, he didn't have a lot of fancy equipment or budget to mic everybody up with wireless mics and all this stuff that we could do now, like we did in our documentary. So there are things like that, but. How about the uh, character who is narrating the whole story, uh, you know, who was supposed to be the little kid running across the field in the beginning of the movie to get to get uh, the, the fellow to come down and check out because his mama told him to go get him. And then uh, the end, he's back at his own homestead saying he's still here. Was that uh, based on a real guy or was that totally made up? Well, it was constructed into a bookend kind of thing. The story about the kid running to town is a true story. And, okay. Uh, I've got that in, in my newer Foggy Creek case book. I've got a really good um, – really nail those down in chronological order. Um, but anyway, the kid runs to town. The thing at the end where he come, comes back and revisits it, revisits as an adult and all that, that was just mm-hmm. made up to kind of tie up the movie, which was brilliant, you know, and, uh, but yeah, yeah it's, that was added in, but the, there really was a kid whose mom, they saw what, what the mom described as a wild man or something down there at the edge of their field. And that poor kid had to run a good mile up there to foul, to, to tell the guys to come back down there you know, and then the kid had to run back home. So I thought, boy, I'd have been scared to death, <laughs> scared to death of <laughs> that kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The movie gave the impression that the narrator was the kid, and he'd been, you know, yeah. going on with this all his life, and he went back. So that was all. That was all fiction added, I guess. He was basically the narrator of the whole thing. Yeah, well, and that was the character of the narrator that he was the kid, yeah, and then yeah. he went back and. That the narrator was a weatherman from Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, that came in and narrated that um, to to good effect. And then he also narrated a, another one of Charles Pierce's movie called "The Town That Dreaded Sundown." Uh, so you oh, hear that. yeah, I remember that. But uh, yeah, that's that was just a weatherman with a really good voice that Pierce uh-huh. knew from his days of working in in film, uh, TV down in the Shreveport, Texarkana area. Uh, another question I have for you, there is a, a, a very uh, nerve-wracking scream in the movie that I heard was an actual recording made in the Falk region. It, do you know if that is true or not? But the, the, basically the scream of the, of the monster that's heard throughout the film. Right. Yeah, that's I get that question a lot. Uh to the best of that I can determine and I've spoken to the son of the the guy who composed the music and did most of the soundtrack noises and things and they built that scream with a combination of a couple of animals. Um I, I, 
they're not quite sure what animals, but uh, according to Pierce, the, his story was that they he had been down there with Smokey, and they had actually recorded audio of the Fout Monster's scream, and mm-hmm. that that's that's what you hear in the film. Well, knowing darn well what audio sounds like in the woods, you know that's that wouldn't be high enough quality. So, I think it's possible that if they did record something down there, they then incorporated that into the scream you hear in the in the movie, but they had to mix it in with some some other animals and things to really, you know, beef it up. So that that's how it was done. So it was a combination, much like they would do any Star Wars creature or anything else where they'll often take a a known animal or two or three and then blend them together until it creates this sort of natural yet monstrous sounding effect and, and possibly in this case we literally had a monster howl from Pierce down there. So true but exaggerated. Right. Yeah. I think right. That, 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 <laughs> that was a very famous there. a lot of years. It was used in other movies too, like the creature from Black Lake and so on and so forth. Uh yeah. it was quite nerve wracking. I always wondered if that story about them actually recording it down there when they were making the movie was true. And I never was able to get an answer on that. Thank you, Lyle. Yes. I've, I've, I said I've asked a lot about that one. So, you know, and then, <laughs> Pierce, you know, Pierce is a good, was a good showman, salesman, and movie maker. So, you know, I'm never quite sure what to believe about that. But I do know that they were down there and they heard Smokey said they heard what they believed was the creature. So I know whether now whether they recorded it or not, they they did hear some sounds down there, much like today if we were doing Bigfoot research, you know, we might hear it. So. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, now when he did this um, documentary slash movie, I don't think anybody suspected it would become so popular, did they? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it was, I mean, it's literally a fluke. I mean, this is a guy that not connected to Hollywood. He had never made a movie. The subject was about a Bigfoot, you know, nobody. It was just a laugh. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the buddy Ledwell, which was a big businessman there in Texarkana, which put up the money, the whole $160,000 for Pierce to make it. I think he was worried he was going to get his $160,000 back. And, of course, he made millions and millions on the whole thing later, so he had no worries. In fact, when they started showing it, you know, distributors and stuff wouldn't touch it. Pierce had a copy of the movie, and he owed Ledwell money, so what he had to do was – rent out a theater in Texarkana and start showing showing it himself. That's called four-walling, where you literally, you know, put up the money for the theater and just start showing a movie yourself. Well, the buzz about that creature was so big that there was immediately lines and lines around the block. So then he got a second print of the film and started showing it in Shreveport, Louisiana. Same thing, lines and lines. And they would move it around the theaters, and they literally – they had a guy whose job, sole job was to go around to the theaters at the end of the night and collect all the cash 
you know, the whatever it costs a dollar or two dollars to get in. This guy was the bag man, and he had to go around and gather up big loads of cash so that they could get them safely into the bank. But these guys had no idea, you know, when they were making this movie that in a short period of time they were going to be just rolling in cash, and they literally were. Oh, yeah, and and that also, that the, like we had talked before, that the monster hunters were coming out of the woodwork. Um, I don't think that anybody really even gave that much forward thinking about, well, if this becomes popular, we're going to have this to deal with, we're going to have that to deal you know, they didn't really think that over because they didn't didn't think it was ever going to be an issue. And then next thing you know, all this other stuff happened. You've got, you know, like you said, people with guns and 12-packs coming on people's property, and it got a little crazy. Right, yeah. It was no idea, you know. Falk didn't even have a police force. They depended on the Miller County Sheriff's Office and the deputies. So they, you know, there was more... And Falk is so small. I mean, it was sometimes more outsiders coming in there than it was people that even lived there. And, of course, in retrospect, I mean, nowadays, you know, they could make a lot of money on tourism or what have you, but it just blindsided them, you know. It just – Willie Smith was making some, uh, you know, Falk uh, Monster Track replicas and selling them. So a few people made good on it as best they could, but it definitely was – a big surprise to to him. <laughs> and the movie kind of, uh, I'm not sure if it could be, I kind of feel the movie kind of started the genre of the docudrama. I mean, there had been television documentaries on Sasquatch before this, but this is the first time you had a combination documentary drama in the theaters on the subject. Right. Yeah, I, I think it was highly influential, and I mean, if you kind of look at the way those things from that time period and what pierce the format, you know, and now we're watching Finding Bigfoot with reenactments and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, you know, Pierce is literally doing that in 19, filming that in 1971. So I think very cutting edge, not only in terms of independent movie making, but yeah, this sort of docudrama thing that we see so much with Bigfoot and paranormal things that have come since, you know. Hmm. Before their time and didn't even know it. <laughs> and we hold all to the legend of Boggy Creek. <laughs> uh, um, well, I'll tell you, the thing that I take away from all of this conversation we just had was thinking back that Sightings and encounters were going on in the, the Jonesville area, the Falcon area, back into the 50s, maybe even before that, but for sure we know in the 50s. That's kind of when things started taking off over in the Pacific Northwest as well with the Jerry Crew incident and all the stuff that came forth out of that. So, you know, who knew that we had that going on in the Deep South at the same time it was going on in the Pacific Northwest because it never got the kind of attention, you know, or discussion. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point. It's a good point for credibility because, you know, the people in Falk knew nothing about 
Jerry Crew or anything, and the people uh, in the Pacific Northwest knew nothing about Falk. Yet these things were sort of developing parallel at the same during the same time periods, ramping up towards you know the late 60s and 70s when all of a sudden we became aware publicly about some of this stuff. Um, nationwide and yeah so mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting yeah, that's that good validation right. yeah and uh while uh other than the sulfur river bottoms and the folk and arkansas area what other uh areas have you been looking into that you find absolutely fascinating i mean i'm just finishing your book sinister swamps it almost seems like almost all of them have Legends, and not just Sasquatch, but uh, legends of other things, too. Yeah, yeah, over the years, you know, I kind of, once I had done the Beast of Boggy Creek book, and I had done a lot of, like, Bigfoot research in East Texas and around where I lived, Oklahoma, kind of hung around with some Bigfoot guys. Uh, You know, I looked into a lot of, cases then across the south you know skunk ape type things all the way from you know texas to florida and uh in between so concentrated on that in my beyond boggy creek book where i sort of go beyond and talk about the whole deep south and yeah it's just the phenomenon is just there with the history and modern sightings um and then the the momo case i always thought that was a kind of a cool one it had a lot of similarities to the Falk case it just you know it didn't have a movie so it wasn't as famous but it had a ton of newspaper coverage and there was a lot of weird stuff that went on so I enjoyed uh, going up to Missouri and researching that book and uh, and then the Sinister Swamps was kind of came out of my fascination for that swampy environment I just love that kind of you know maybe I watch too many Scooby-Doo cartoons or whatever but uh you know, I always love that, you know what I'm saying, like that setting with the swamp and it's spooky and then there's people see ghosts and monsters. And so over the years, I would just kind of collect these reports and newspaper articles that um, revolved around swamps, famous swamps or small swamps. And, and that kind of de- came into the Sinister Swamps book where I could kind of really cover a lot of ground there and cover some other phenomenon but um you know i always come back to the boggy creek case and my the latest book the boggy creek case book is just literally chronological one by one all the sightings going back from the early 1900s all the way till well the end of the end of last year or so when i finished that manuscript so um you know, that's always kind of the special one, but I'm always, uh, you know, looking for lines on other interesting cases and taking witness reports and, and and stuff like that. So, you know, I concentrate on the South, I would say, is, is a theme here. Well, we certainly do have a lot going on down here in the South, you know. Yeah, there's a lot. People ask me, hey, when are you going to write a, like a book about Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest? I'm like, look, man, there is a lot of really great researchers and writers that have written books about that over the years. And, you know, you, you mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. Hard, hard to read them all. I said, I got so much going on down here, and I'm 
you know, this is the place where I can travel to those places and I can go to the sites and interview the witnesses because that's what I do. And uh, so, yeah, I've always just found plenty to do within, you know, a general uh, southern area. Yeah, well, you know, I'd love to have you come up my way here in North Carolina, where I live right outside the Uwari Forest. We have a lot going on up here. Would love to have you come up this way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I spot. think they'd love to come to British Columbia someday, Lyle. It's an incredible country yeah. up here, mountains and trees. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to get up there. I've been to Canada several times touring with bands and stuff, but it's always been, never been all the way up there. You know, I've been to... Washington State, but never British Columbia. So I'd, someday uh, be, I'd love to go out there, and especially if I had time just to enjoy the scenery. Mm-hmm. Sort of the heart mm-hmm. of Bigfoot, you know. That's sort of like one of those, you know, bucket list things where I could just do a West Coast tour from California all the way up and just sort of do Bigfoot stuff all the way, sights and sounds and visit people. That would just be cool if I ever had that much time, you know. <laughs> and the border is open again because COVID's gone. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you know, when the pandemics are gone and so forth. <laughs> and the, ri- yes, and the riot- uh, rioters. Rough, rough year last year. But, Lyle, I'm going to ask you, we're getting short on time here, and I want to make sure I get this in. Um, what – you've got your hand into so many fires. What is your, your next um, big project, or can you share? I know sometimes people can't get into a lot of what they're into uh, that's not quite come out yet, but do you have anything uh, you can share with us about where what direction you're heading next? Uh, yeah, you know, there's, I've got several book ideas and, uh, you know, I just, I did a lot this year with a couple of books out and then getting an album out. And, uh, I think going forward, I've got two different books I want to do, which is trying, I'm freeing up some time so I can concentrate. One of those actually is it falls into the true crime genre, although it has connections to cryptids. So, um, kind of flexing my uh, boundaries there, sort of like I did with Sinister Swamps, and then and then the other one is is a lot of people have been asking me about Dogman, you know, and mm. you know I've always loved sort of the Dogman or even you know werewolf traditional werewolf tales, so that's another um, another thing to pursue more in detail. Uh, with you know something on the dog man perhaps so those are those are the ideas going forward oh wow and that's going to be in book format yeah books are you know it's what I like to do the best and you know the films and stuff with unless Seth and the guys want to do you know head up the small town monsters I'm always game to team up with film but I never I'm never the captain on those ships. I'm, I just enjoy the book process and the writing of that. So uh, probably stick with it. Lately, it's been book sales have been good. I guess people are home, <laughs> locked down, reading books. So absolutely, uh, yeah, I definitely. Can't complain. Can't, com- can't complain. Yeah, they're locked there, down. So. Listen, 
music too, Lyle. So what's the name of your band for all those who don't know it? The band is called Ghoul Town. Ghoul Town. And Ghoul, Ghoul Town is, we've, I mean, I was a musician before I was writing books and have been a musician semi-professionally or professionally for almost my entire life since high school. So uh, that band, we don't tour like we used to, but we put out an album every several years, which, you know, does well. And uh, so I just completed one this year and, uh, you know, you can find Ghoul Town. There's links from my LyleBlackburn.com site to to the band Ghoul Town if people want to check it out or it's on, you know, iTunes and everywhere else. But, um, but yeah, the music is fun, kind of, you know, a change of pace every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the books that you do have, The, the Beast, the Bo- Boggy Creek, Beyond Boggy Creek, uh, Lizard Man, Momo, Boggy, Bobby, I can't even, Boggy Creek, say that ten times fast, The Boggy Creek Casebook, all those, are they avail- available through Amazon as well? Yes, you can get all of them on Amazon. They're in okay. paperback and uh, e- ebook format, and even some of them are in hardback. So yeah, just uh, hit search me up on Amazon. All right. Well, Thomas, do you have anything else uh, you wanted to add? We just got a couple more minutes here. I just wanted to get his impression on the whole lizard man thing. What does he think on that? Yeah, that's certainly kind of a a more bizarre and puzzling case. Uh, you know, it, it it has some solid witnesses and a much more concentrated group of sightings back in the late '80s. My opinion on that is like it's it's kind of a stretch to think that there's sort of a reptilian humanoid or something thereof. But uh, I, I truly believe people definitely we're seeing something and you know i go into propose a few theories in my book that you know they it could be misidentified bigfoot or something else but uh certainly a, a really bizarre and interesting case and another one that affected a whole entire town uh with you know all the press and the media and the monster hunters and other bizarre stuff revolving around this, you know, reptilian humanoid. So I, I never had any, I don't have a solid answer on that other than I do, I'm quite confident people saw something they could not identify. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with that. Well, Lyle, I'll tell you what, it's been awesome. And I could sit here for a couple more hours, but... We we know how the time restraints are on on these things, but I really appreciate you joining us, and I know Tom and I are both big fans of your work, and uh, we appreciate you, and you're definitely um, a motivator. Oh well, I appreciate it. It's an, it's an honor to talk to to both of y'all, and you know you're some of the well known and great researchers and. Uh, folks in this field, so it's always great and fun to to talk about these subjects. Great, awesome, I appreciate it. Well, Thomas, I guess that's it for us. For it's a wrap for this one, but we'll uh, we'll be back again 
next month with another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, talking old-timers with Thomas Steenberg. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you next time. Great talk to you, Lyle. I enjoyed it very much. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Talk to you later. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And On the Shoulders of Giants is brought to you, of course, by Monster X Radio. Thank you.